Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Just a call, cool $7 trillion over on the Fed balance sheet. Joining us now to weigh into the situation, Jared Woodard of Bank of America. Jared, fantastic to catch up with you, sir. It's a delicate moment. Risk appetite in the cyclical areas of the market just starting to build over the last few weeks. And at the same time, the relationship between China and the United States breaking down. What's the message to clients at the moment, Jared? Well, yeah, it's great to be with you all. I think that the message for us is that the, the key thing for returns over the next several quarters is what kind of policy path uh, we take, you know, coming out of this pandemic and, and charting a path forward, you know, three broad scenarios. If we do just give, you know, uh, you know, extensive unemployment insurance, plug the revenue hole for states, we think that will happen. But that's the limit of what we happen. We think it's a return to the, the sort of secular stagnation that we're all familiar with and the portfolios that investors have already crowded into tech and, and health care and investment grade and so on. Not a huge you know, scope for a really massive bull market off of that. But the two more interesting scenarios, and the, and the two that I think deserve much more attention, are the, the sort of stagflationary effects. If you do see increased friction of, you know, tech regulation, uh, friction with China, and then and then the third scenario, not stagflation, but I'm calling it elevation, where we get bold new policy post globalization shifting toward higher capex, higher R and D, new industrial policy, the kind of things that can really boost productivity and growth. And I think that's what the market's really underpricing. Jared, what's so great about your academic track with theology and your Ph.D. in philosophy is maybe you can give us a new philosophy for a new market. Is the philosophy forward in investing in 2021, 2023 and beyond, 22 and beyond, 23 and beyond, is it the same as the old philosophy or is it something new? Well, I think it's absolutely something new. I mean, just look at the realignment happening in you know, in, in, in political cultures around the world, you're seeing people, uh, you know, the populist left, the populist right coming together on propositions that they, that, you know, were never up for discussion before. Just look at what the U.S. government has done, you know, in, in a Republican-controlled Senate, you know, expanding fiscal policy on a scale we've never seen before in U.S. peacetime, something that nobody would have thought possible. I mean, just remember the, the TARP vote in 2008 when they voted down, you know, that package and crushed markets, and instead, on this occasion, you know, I think that that uh, Republicans have surprised everyone with the willingness to, uh, you know, grow the, grow grow the government balance sheet. Um, what's happening? You know, uh, uh, the same thing's happening in Europe now with, you know, potential uh, revolution in terms of fiscal policy. Uh, Japan coming through with, you know, 11 percent of real water fiscal uh, stimulus. I mean, these are things that were unthinkable even six six or 12 months ago. And if they're followed through with, you know, the kind of productivity boosting policies that can really uh, uh, get us to a new level. I think it requires a complete rethink of asset allocation and portfolios. How so? So how would that make you uh, reallocate your, your, your investments? Well, if we're going to, you know, if developed countries are going to stop relying on, you know, just monetary policy to, to help us limp along, but invest in, you know, new technology, you know, you know incentivize corporate capex, uh, invest in research and development again. I mean, there's nothing that correlates better with productivity than, than R&D. Uh, so if you do see scope for productivity to rise, for, you know, employment to broaden out, uh, income inequality to decline, that's how you can see, you know, really meaningfully higher GDP growth in developed economies that otherwise, you know, kind of stagnated at 1% or 2%. That means suddenly all the trades that everyone has hated for so long, the, you know, value stocks, the financials, uh, you know, materials, industrials, 
um, you know, Europe, Japan, uh, the things that people don't own today suddenly become much more attractive in a world of higher growth and productivity. Jared Woodard of Bank of America with us. So, Jared, are you telling me that this rotation into value, into the cyclical areas of this market, is not just a squeeze, it has legs? I'm not telling you this is the one, John. I love it. It would be true. But we need more more confirmation yet. There's two things in in our our latest report that we flagged as things to watch to know when it's a big one. You know, number one is is the bond market. It's great to see, you know, value and, and, and high yield in Europe rallying. But until you see confirmation from bond yields telling you that oh, higher growth, higher yeah. demand-driven inflation is in the future, <clears throat> that's number one. Number two is breadth. You know, when the top five stocks in the S&P are more than 20% of market cap, uh, that's, not the, that's not the inception of a, of a shiny new bull market. To see a big rally, we found in our, in our, our quantitative study that you need to see um, much broader participation before you see big equity returns. Right. Jared, I mean, it's amazing how rude John is on a Friday. It's just, it's really, really typical, folks. And we'll get through it uh, today. Jared, I, I, the last time I saw Ken Lewis was at Bank of America's shop in Singapore. That was a long, long time ago. And that was the last time international stocks did well. When does the international equity market finally turn on a relative or even, dare say, an absolute basis? Well, the, the news this week and, and last week out of Japan and Europe, I think, is, is a really great start. Um, if you can see, you know, I mean, Europe has some ways to go to verify uh, and approve the packages that they're talking about. But if you, if you see resistance from northern European countries, uh, you know, see those dominoes fall, and we suddenly have scope for, you know, some kind of debt mutualization, for some kind of continent-wide fiscal policy, then, um, you know, some of the deep value trades, maybe value traps, European banks maybe most of all, uh, are suddenly in play from an investor point of view, things that nobody's owned, the flows have been, you know, decimated in, in those kind of assets. Uh, and Japan as well. I mean, they've, they've relied on extreme monetary policy for so long that if Japan can start to boost, you know, demand, uh, get out of this balance sheet recession that they've been, been stuck in, and suddenly I think those assets become attractive. You've got to see follow-through, obviously. Um, but once we get confirmation from, from the market that things are really starting to turn, you see infl- inflation expectations turn, mm-hmm. then I think it, it represents an incredible, maybe even generational, uh, buying opportunity. Jared Woodard of Bank of America. Jared, we've got to continue this conversation. Jared's not saying this is the one, yes. Tom, but it might be. The dollar weaker, the euro advances, and this for me, Tom, the story of the moment. Risk appetite continues to build, and that dollar strength continues to fade. No question about it. Catherine Mann, of course, running economics at Citigroup, and what a job Willem Bowder did providing leadership there. One of his great acquisitions is Ibrahim Rabari, who was just brilliant on Europe with a certain authority, and then on foreign exchange as well. And we're thrilled that Dr. Obari could join us this morning. Ibrahim, John mentions the Euro call 110. John has seen this 47 times in his lengthy career. Are we going to get suckered again into strong Euro and then oops? Yes, uh, Tom, John, thanks for having me on. Uh, that's exactly how we feel. So we think for the for the moment, there is a bit of upside drift in the Euro, and that's partly because uh, there's a surge in markets for undervalued assets and uh, euros on equities, BTPs, and to some degree the euro show up there. But we think this is going to be on borrowed time. So even though we think there will be a little bit more upside drift in the euro and in euro dollar, for instance, we think that 
there won't be much more headroom. And just as before, this rally will be over before long. There's a question about the other side of that trade, which is the dollar and we're watching the dollar continue to weaken. I was kind of shocked this morning when I came in to my living room uh, that the dollar was weakening versus even the Chinese yuan, the renminbi, despite the elevated tensions between the U.S. and China. Are we finally reaching a point where people have had it with the increase in the debt loads and some of uh, what's going on in the United States and are moving away from the dollar? Or is this just a temporary reallocation? So from our perspective, it is probably more temporary, uh, and there are good and bad reasons for it. I think the good reasons for why the dollar is a little bit under pressure right now is that the global investor base is getting less worried about the rest of the world. So we are seeing activity indicators in general slightly exceeding what people were expecting. Uh, but even on the health side, I think the long-suffering emerging markets are seeing signs of flattening as well. So there are good reasons for the rest of the world, if you like, to see a little bit of dollar downside. And that also translates, again, into looking for what looks cheap, and U.S. assets don't look cheap by any metric uh, across the board. And and then there are the bad reasons, quote-unquote. So there is some level of concern around U.S.-China tensions, the debate about U.S. debasement, and then also slowly uh, a beginning concern about the potential risks attached to the U.S. election. So these are, I think, very acute for the time being, But once again, we think that's probably temporary. We think that the U.S. still looks uh, as, you know, among the least ugly in the in the global economy. The the likelihood of a bounce back in growth in the U.S. is is much higher than elsewhere. So we we think it's once again too early to to write off the dollar and call an end to uh, the strong dollar. Ibrahim, right now, it just feels like a sentiment story. It feels like a positioning story. And that's what's pushing some of these big moves over the last several weeks. It doesn't feel like it's got anything to do with rate differentials, just optimism around places like Europe. Why don't you buy into the euro optimism of the last couple of weeks, Ibrahim? Yes. Yeah, so we think there are two reasons why we're skeptical. One is uh, exactly on that issue of risk appetite. Uh, I think a good chunk of that was that previously we had very defensive positioning. And, and I think we are now at a point where positioning is by no means stretched, but it's, it's no longer very defensive. So we are already at relatively neutral levels, and we do think there are significant risks for, let's call it, the second phase of the recovery uh, down the road. So significant risks of disappointment uh, that could weigh on broader risk appetite. And again, I think assets like Eurozone equities would be very vulnerable. The second has to do much more with the specific European developments. We, of course, had these initiatives around the EU recovery fund, the French-German proposals, and so forth. And even though we think that these are significant, visible fiscal transfers supported by Germany, we don't think they're a Hamiltonian moment. We don't think this is a game changer for uh, the Eurozone or for the Euro in that it doesn't really chart a clear path going forward. It's, it's dealing with a one-off situation in a, fairly, in a fairly constrained way. So these two reasons make us skeptical that we're looking at a kind of an enduring break in the Euro or enduring upside for Eurozone assets. Ibrahim Rangbari of Citigroup with us today. Ibrahim, I'll just follow up on the ECB next week, just briefly. might sound stupid on the surface of things, but I'm trying to work out whether more QE next week is euro positive or euro negative. Which one is it? <laughs> it's, a very good, it's a very good point. We think on balance right now, uh, more QE is euro positive. And in, that's because you still have a, a risk <laughs> premium, particularly for BTPs and euro, purchases, uh, so euro asset purchases by the ECB bring down that risk premium. So in that sense, we think if the ECB did not increase asset purchases, in fact, the euro would end up setting off and so would, uh, of course, in particular, periphery sovereign debt. 
Abraham, you mentioned a Hamiltonian moment. Many people are thinking the Broadway play. I'm thinking about way, way back where maybe it was fractious, but Hamilton had to deal with, I'm going to say, 13 colonies or states, however you want to describe it. You can't have a Hamiltonian moment with 27 distaff countries, can you? I'm very sympathetic to your perspective. Uh, I wouldn't completely write it off Thank for the you. You know, very distant future. But, but, but I think certainly this isn't it, and we're far away from it. And uh, in this specific case, as I mentioned, it's, it's one-off. There's no transfer of fiscal powers or political powers even. And we're, we're dealing with a, a construct that's not even easily scaled. So I think it is very inappropriate to refer to this as a, as a Hamiltonian moment. So just going forward to broaden out, your base case is that the dollar will resume its strengthening and you'll see a weakening in the euro going forward and that the dollar will end the year as the dominant currency just as it was a couple months ago. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, I think uh, broadly, but we, are, we have a couple of things along the way. And I think the one that obviously stands out is the U.S. election. So what we assume is that we are in a sort of late stage of the rich recovery, but then there will be a period of uncertainty around the U.S. election, and we, we think that the right. dollar might end up being a little bit under pressure because of that, but then around the election, the dollar would uh, once again resume its uptrend as well. So there are a few more ebbs and flows, but we, we believe that the dollar bull market can still continue. John Farrell, I want you to get a question in here on this ECB forward meeting, because I think, you're, you know, John, you looked awfully good on the lawn of the ECB building uh, just a few years ago. <laughs> I mean, you were like the Frankfurt expert <laughs> as well. John, what do you see from the ECB? And I know you've got a question for Dr. Rabari about it. Tom, I used to time my visits to the ECB really effectively because they go on tour twice a year. So I'd end up in places like Cyprus covering the European Central Bank. You've got to time these things properly. We'll do that. Hopefully next year, Very if these good. get back to normal, we'll go on one of those ECB tours as well. Ibrahim, this Love is the problem it. for the ECB. Brilliant. They're already doing so <clears throat> much. What's the objective of the next move? You'll remember just a couple of months ago, Christine Lagarde said she was not here to close spreads. She wanted to put pressure on the fiscal policymaker. What kind of pressure do you put on fiscal if you follow up next Thursday with more QE and more asset purchases? Well, I think it's absolutely critical that they continue and reinforce at this next meeting because not only are spreads still wide in, uh, in periphery sovereign debt, but in between we've had that German court ruling with had which had questions the ECB's uh, uh, capability to do its job. So I think at this meeting, it's truly essential that the ECB, at least in some shape or form, reinforces its presence in, in asset markets. But beyond that, also just keep in mind that, unlike the Fed, the ECB has not been particularly proactive, forceful, or aggressive, as Chair Powell likes to refer to it. We've seen a pretty steady run rate from the ECB. So I think it's, again, important for the ECB symbolically to be active, even if kind of on a weekly basis, we don't see particularly uh, pressure rising on, on uh, risk assets in, in, in Europe. But I think uh, that the ECB does act yeah. in some shape or form next week will be extremely important. Ibrahim Rakbari of Citigroup on the situation in Europe and the foreign exchange market. Ibrahim, great to catch <coughs> up with you, sir. Thank you. Send our best to the team. What's so important about the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which I guess is a lobbying group, is its founding in 1908 
was an international delegation to, to Japan. At the time, that was extraordinary. And then President Taft really driving forward the founding of the chamber to the modern day of this controversy and that, but also the representation of business abroad. Myron Brilliant is involved with this as head of international affairs for the chamber, and he joins us now. Let's say, Myron, you and the crew were to get on Cathay Pacific tonight and Monday morning, you're in Hong Kong or in Beijing to bring a business delegation in. It's not going to be a normal meeting, is it? Well, Tom, I wasn't alive in 1908 when the U.S. Chamber of Commerce was created by President Taft's uh, support. But I can tell you that our mission hasn't changed, right? We know that uh, we have tremendous interest in selling and exporting around the world. And of course, Hong Kong has been an important gateway to China and to Asia. And we do a fair amount of business, $67 billion of trade investment between Hong Kong and the United States. So if I were landing today in Hong Kong, I'd be very concerned about Hong Kong's future. Uh, we issued okay. <clears throat> earlier in the week about this, Am and I we are concerned. Okay, but this is really, really important, Myron. We've got a press conference coming up with the president this afternoon. If That's you what I hear. If you get his ear or Mr. Kudlow's ear or somebody else's ear, Myron, what would you say to them about how to handle this exceptionally delicate time? Well, look, the China-U.S. relationship has never been more complex, and I've been involved in it for about 30 years. I was there uh, lobbying for China's accession to the WTO and getting rid of the annual MFN uh, status debate in the 1990s. So I know the history here, but China-US relations are much more important on a national security front, on a geostrategic front, and of course on economic terms as well. So what I would be saying is that I think China does need to have a response from the US government. Of course, the business community doesn't want to have the collateral consequences of that, but there has been an action taken by the Chinese government that is an erosion of the one country, two systems approach that has served Hong Kong well, has served, of course, Hong Kong as an international community, a financial hub, a rules-based economy. And I think it served China's interest well. And this action taken by China uh, to adopt a new national security law, I think undermines that confidence and creates instability and insecurity and adds to a plethora of issues that already exist in the U.S.-China relationship that are complex and challenging from technology to trade to Hong Kong, obviously, human rights and other issues as well. Well, uncertainty is the key word here, and that was the prevailing sentiment among businesses and C-suites when we saw the trade tensions ramping up between the U.S. and China. Now there's a question sure. of the uncertainty of whether the phase one deal is off the table, whether we're going to see the U.S. take measures that uh, increase sanctions or tariffs on China. How much are you worried about that uncertainty, that lack of clarity on the U.S. response and what China will do in retaliation of the effect on U.S. businesses? So first off, uh, we very much supported uh, the U.S. administration's effort to try to address unfair trade actions through a trade negotiation. And we were very much supportive of the actions around intellectual property, around technology transfer, of course, trying to deal with some issues that were not addressed in phase one, like subsidies and state-owned enterprise structures and things like that. However, uh, we believe that phase one agreement is in the interest of both China and the United States and it provided some stability. China has not fulfilled all of its obligations under its phase one agreement. This is going to be another issue of tension and has emerged as one in the last few weeks. 
But I think that the negotiations between China and the United States on the trade front has been to some extent isolated from the broader political challenges in the relationship. And that's a good thing. We want to see China and the United States work through these difficult trade issues because the stakes are so large for the economy of China, the United States, and of course the global economy. But that said, uh, this is an issue that is coming to the forefront because it's been a very difficult environment with COVID-19. The pandemic has, of course, created a challenge for China to purchase all the goods they should be purchasing from the United States. And I think they've been a little slow in implementing some of their obligations around financial services and IPR, although they have taken some steps in that direction. I hope those negotiations get fully implemented. I think the phase one agreement is something we supported very forcefully. We provided a lot of input to our government. We talked to the Chinese government about it. But there, that's a floor. That's not a ceiling in this. I mean, there's so much more work to be done to improve the commercial relationship between China and the United States. And we're going to continue to be advocates in that front. Maren, brilliant. We look forward to continuing the conversation of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Right now with us, someone, and I always go back, folks, to his fabulous interview with Jeff Bezos of a number of the year, years ago, David Rubenstein, with his efforts here at Bloomberg with Leadership Live and others to speak to people directly and at length about the sensitive issues of their business. Mr. Rubenstein, clearly with the Carlyle Group as well. David, well-timed with the leadership of YouTube. I find people glued to the product, glued to YouTube, but there are real issues here, a la the Twitter upset of the morning with the president. There's real issues of how YouTube will police itself. What did you learn? Well, YouTube, uh, when I talked to uh, the CEO yesterday, uh, Sue Wojcicki, um, and she was the person who actually rented her garage to Sergey Brin and Larry Page when they were starting the company, and then she became, I think, later the 16th employee, and then later she, when she was an employee there, she recommended they buy a little company called YouTube, and now it's become a behemoth. Um, she, uh, it was an awkward situation in the sense that we didn't really know exactly what President Trump's uh, executive order said, because as I was interviewing her yesterday, it hadn't yet come out, um, but she basically said that they do the best they can to police the things that come on. She didn't use the word police, but to, if something is inaccurate on YouTube, they try to take it down. And so you have, you know, I assume hundreds and hundreds of people who watch what goes on YouTube so they can make sure it's not filled with things that are uh, wrong or, or inaccurate or dangerous. I, I look, David, at the time that we're in with the invention of this new media property. You know the valuations that are being put on these properties. My question of the morning, which I say to you with great respect for your, for your financing of all this, are these things news organizations? Is YouTube, is Twitter, is Facebook a news organization to David Rubenstein? Well, uh, of course, nothing rivals Bloomberg as a news organization, I would say. But uh, there's Thank no you. doubt that, that many, many people, particularly younger people than me, get their news from uh, YouTube, uh, from Twitter, from Facebook, in ways that I would have found surprising. In other words, I go out and buy the newspapers every day. I still physically buy them and read them in the hard copy, but very few people do, including my, none of my children do. And so people get their news from these other kind of sources. So for many people, YouTube probably provides more news to people under the age of, let's say, 30 than, than the New York Times, the Washington Post, or the Wall Street Journal. So yes, they are news organizations in that sense.
David, the idea of leadership right now has a pretty interesting meaning, especially as the Twitter spat with President Trump heats up. And as we see Twitter punished in stock markets for their actions and Facebook, which has not taken similar actions, rewarded by stock investors. How do you, as both an investor as well as a watcher of how these trends are evolving, view leadership in this capacity? Where does the responsibility lie with society or some kind of greater good kind of concept or Mm -hmm. Uh, with just the bottom line? Well, two points. One, uh, clearly the market doesn't like controversy. So if you are in a uh, kind of a spat with the President of the United States, uh, it's probably not going to help your stock. That would be my guess. If you are saying good things about the President of the United States, in this context, uh, maybe it doesn't hurt your stock. It may help your stock. But generally, uh, I think there is a responsibility of all organizations that have this kind of dissemination of information to try to be reasonably accurate. Now, obviously, you don't want censorship, but you want people to make certain that they, they don't watch uh, YouTube or Facebook and see something that is defamatory about something or something anti-Semitic or, or something that it deals with the racial overturns that, that are just inappropriate. So it's a tough, tough uh, uh, job. And I wouldn't want to be one of the people who had to figure out what is appropriate and what is not appropriate. But there's no doubt that as we go forward as an investor, more and more uh, value will accrete to these type of organizations because that's where people are getting their news. That's where people are watching. David, you recall that video that leaked out of Facebook a number of months ago with Mark Zuckerberg talking about Senator Warren saying we're prepared to go to the mat if they try and break up this company. You speak to the leadership of these tech firms. Can you give us a sense of the kind of things that they are worried about coming out of Washington, D.C., the things that keep them up at night, the things that scare them? Well, um, you know, Will Rogers, um, the famous humorist in, the, I guess, 1930s, used to say, the country's never safe whenever Congress is in session. So people in Silicon Valley are always worried that Congress or the administration will do something. But as we've learned in the Microsoft lawsuit and other kinds of things, uh, these things take a long time to get done, if they're going to get done, and it's not that easy to break these companies up. On the other hand, um, AT&T was broken up, and Standard Oil was broken up many, many years ago. So I I don't see any of these companies being broken up, but they might change uh, the way they operate, and they certainly are spending more and more time in Washington (laughs) letting members of Congress and members of the administration know their pluses. David Rubenstein, an open question on a Friday as we stagger into June with this pandemic. We are seeing a massive economic contraction out of the 30s. As you know, the Mellon family was hugely charitable in Washington a lifetime ago. Are we going to see the combinations and the transactions that lead to combinations because of this economic depression like we saw in the 30s? Are we going to see one big roll-up? Well, I don't know we'll see that, but I I, I do think that we are going to uh, find more and more pressure being put on the wealthiest people in the United States to give back to society, and obviously many of them are already doing that, but more and more philanthropy will be required to meet the gaps that government can no longer meet, because government won't have the resources, not going to have the budget to be able to do all the things that it has done over the last couple of years, and so more and more philanthropy will be uh, expected, I think, uh, of these wealthy individuals who benefited from you know, a lot of the tech uh, uh, increase in value. And I, I think you'll see more and more pressure for, for people to do more uh, where government can't do it. And remember, we're, we're running big deficits and big debt. And I think the government at some point is just not going to be able to pay for all the things that it's been paying for. David, always great to get your perspective. It's valuable thank to you. us. So thank you for joining us this thank, morning. Really appreciate you, your time, sir. 
audience worldwide on Bloomberg TV and on Bloomberg Radio. Alongside Michael McKee and me, I'm really pleased to say that back with us on this program is the Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester. Loretta, fantastic to have you with us back on the show. We just had a conversation with Mohamed Alarian a little bit earlier on Bloomberg TV. For our listeners on Bloomberg Radio who may have missed that, he was talking about the risk to the downside of doing more. What are the downside risks for the Federal Reserve of doing even more? Well, the way I view what we've done so far is, remember, we saw that the financial markets were not functioning well. So we took very strong actions to make sure that the financial markets continue to function so that credit could flow to households and businesses. Without a functioning financial system, we'd have a financial stability crisis on top of a pandemic crisis. So no one would have wanted that. So our actions so far have been, I think, impactful. I think you've seen the financial markets working better. I think liquidity is flowing. Um, And I think those have been um, important uh, programs that we set up, these emergency facilities. Some of them uh, are still to come in terms of opening for business. The terms are being negotiated um, with Treasury and to make sure that those programs work well. So that's kind of the state of play there. I think as the economy and more places begin to open up, we'll have a better sense of what the recovery is looking like. And we may have to, and I expect that we'll have to support the recovery going forward. But we're really at the very beginning stages of that because there's still parts of the country that are shut down. So it really depends on what you mean by doing more. I I do think there's going to be a second phase of monetary policy, but that'll be more of the supporting the recovery, supporting activity, making sure that we can have a, a, a recovery that, that takes hold and, and, and develops. Well, President Mester, let's talk about that because quite clearly a couple of months ago, it's night and day compared to where we are now. And I think it would be hard pushed to suggest that it's about market functioning anymore. You've talked about that next phase. If the previous phase, the objective was market functioning, what does the next phase look like? And how are the tools different? How is the response to the Federal Reserve different? Right. So the way I view it is, we, you know, just think about the second quarter. The second quarter numbers, when they come out, are going to be very, very negative numbers. I mean, we know that. We know that that was the height of the shutdown when there was no activity. In the third quarter and fourth quarter, we're going to see activity begin to emerge. I think some of the quarterly growth rates are going to overstate um, the what it looks like really out in the field because we're going to see from a base of very little activity some pickup in activity and they're going to look like big growth rates but we're still going to be below where we were at the start of the year in terms of both uh, employment and output so I think we have to take this you know looking at how this is emerging I think there's a lot of concern about um, second waves of the virus so what makes this difficult is that we have both economics going on and also uh, a health crisis going on. And so that is, that's very different than other economic shocks that we've had in the past. And so I think a lot of how the recovery goes is going to be dependent on COVID testing, the three C's, COVID testing, contract mapping, and making sure that the capacity of the healthcare system can handle um, an increase in cases that every epidemiologist is telling us that we should expect over the second half of the year. That means that the recovery could be slow. Um, When you have so many people out of work, it's hard to imagine that we'd see a quick V-shaped recovery. I think it's gonna be slow. I think businesses are gonna be thoughtful about reopening. I think people are gonna be thoughtful about 
uh, spending. And so what that means is that monetary policy has a role to play as we support the economy, getting back to our dual mandate goals of full employment and price stability. And so that's more traditional uh, monetary policy. And the tools that we have are our interest rate tool, which already is at zero, forward guidance, uh, which we've used before, and also asset purchases, but asset purchases not to improve market functioning, but really to support the economy as it moves uh, forward towards full employment and price stability. Well, markets want you to uh, specify exactly when you're going to do what you're going to do, of course. And I'm wondering if the June 10th meeting is a time for you to announce anything new at this point. Uh, your Fed, Cleveland Fed, did a study of the Taylor Rule and five other uh, simple rules and found that if you used those, you would have uh, the Fed funds rate, your target, anywhere from a negative 2% to a negative 14%. That suggests at this point, you're not loose enough uh, for the economy we have at the moment. Well, I think those rules, right, are based on the dynamics of the economy, based on history and historical relationships. And if I told you that the unemployment rate, which is now at 14.7 percent, um, you know, you stick that into a rule, you're going to get that kind of result from the rules. But really right now we're not really trying up to this point to stimulate activity right the economy was shut down uh as an investment in our public health right that was the tool that we the country did to sort of try to make sure that the capacity in the healthcare system could build up more could be learned about the transmission mechanism of the of the virus so the the tool the, the the work that we've done so far at the Fed and I would you know the federal government also was really to get us through the shutdown period, so that when the economy began begun begins to reopen, that that's the point where we can support the recovery. And I think that's where the second phase that I was talking about comes into play. We're just at the beginning now of states beginning to reopen. So again, I think we're talking about a future state right, when we see what the recovery is starting to look like as more of the a country is able to reopen. And so I think we're going to have that conversation, those conversations. But again, I think that comes at a later stage when, right, we know a little bit more about what that recovery point is looking at. And we're collecting data all the time on how the opening, reopening is going. So we have some, you know, information on that, but really beginning stages of that for the country. Uh, well, you, the Fed, uh, have long suggested that forward guidance is kind of the next tool that you would employ. But when you look at two-year Treasury note futures, they're under 1% out to the end of 2022. And it's raised a question uh, in people's minds on Wall Street. If you give traders just a one-way bet forever, you're going to have problems down the road. You're going to have a taper tantrum if everybody is in on the same trade for years and years. So I think that's always a concern when you're, we're using these tools um, at the zero lower bound. We always, whenever, whenever we use a tool, at least the way I approach this, is we always have to think about what it looks like at the moment, but also what does it look like in the future and how would you exit from that tool? So I always think approach policy that way, not just looking at the current uh, moment, but also thinking about, okay, what's the path of this going forward? And that's really going to be decided by what happens in the economy. What does the recovery look like? How much accommodation, monetary policy accommodation is needed, right? And then also communicating well so that 
we're not surprising anyone with our policy that we want we want people to understand yeah. where we're coming from what our rationale is but we don't want to necessarily mislead in some way by saying we know exactly what the economy how the economy is going to evolve and so that's when we got into earlier in the in the earlier recovery it was about making sure that people understood that we're not prescient but we are going to base our policy actions on what the data is telling us about the economic outlook well, President Mester, at the moment, there are people worried about how big the Fed's role is in clearing markets now and how big the Fed's role is in setting prices. And there's been a conversation in the last several weeks with us and your colleagues, including President Williams, about yield curve control. I want to try and understand from you, because this is where the confusion is on Wall Street for some people in fixed income at the mm-hmm. moment. Would yield curve control for you be something focused on the front end to the belly of the Treasury curve? Or would you think about doing what Japan is doing, which is all the way out to 10 years? Just how much control over the yield curve, so to speak, would you be looking to have? Right. So my view of yield curve control is that it really is a support for forward guidance if we were going to do it. Now, the committee has discussed yield curve control as a tool um, back in 2010 um, during the financial crisis and then also as part of our framework review as a tool, a potential tool. No decisions have been made on that at all. Um, Again, I don't think of that as something that would be in this phase of what we're doing to make sure that the markets continue to function. But as a tool, I think it's worthwhile thinking about what those tools are going to be that we can use. But right now, that's a discussion uh, for the future phase. And my own view is that if you wanted to do it, um, you'd have to think hard about how you would implement it. And also, as I said before, how do you exit from it? Because with any of these tools, right, there are pros and cons of using them. Right now, you know, as you point out, the yield curve is very flat at the short end. So maybe with the four guidance we've given already, it's not necessary to do something to emphasize that forward guidance. But I don't want to take it off the table as something that's a potential for me to think about as a possible tool. I just don't see that we need it here in the space, nor do I see going forward that we necessarily would need to use it. But if we were to use it, I would view it as a reinforcement for forward guidance on the short end. Before we let you go, I have to ask you about this. Uh, there, are, uh, there is the possibility we could end up in a new trade war with China, ter- additional tariffs going on. How would that affect the economy? Have we already absorbed that, or would that be a new hit to the economy now? Well, I think, you know, whenever there's a new rising up of uncertainty, and this is another uncertainty, I think we have to take it on board as being another potential headwind to a recovery. So I think we have to just use that as part, we have to take the the conditions as they are. Um, I think that we, we played this game before and sort of saw how the uncertainty did dampen um, the expansion earlier. And so I think we have to just take that on board as this is another uncertainty added to an incredible amount of uncertainty we already have. Loretta, we've got to leave it there. I just wanted to say thank you. And thank you for talking to us ahead of the blackout period before the next Fed decision. Really appreciate your time. And hopefully we can get you back on soon. The Cleveland Fed president there, Loretta Mester. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.